0: In light of that, one of the things that we do value here at Storehouse is multiplication, um, specifically in the context of our missional communities. That's what we call our our groups. And uh, and so what I want to do is celebrate. I want you to, to join me in celebrating the launch of one new group. We Technically, it's going to be two groups up here. One started this past fall. Another one starts this coming week. And so if you would... Uh, Uh, Join me in welcoming Eric and Abby Reina and then Asael and Sarai Luna. Don't be shy, guys. (laughs) You can come up on stage in the front, whatever you, hey, whatever you, let me serve you. Let me serve you. So this is Asael and Sarai Luna. They lead an MC in South Far. This is Eric and Abby Reina and their daughter, Evie. They are about to lead a group in North McAllen. And so if you have questions about group life, definitely ask them in addition to the people that are behind the tables. And so what I'd like to do in this time is simply pray for them uh, as they continue to lead their group or as they're about to start leading a group This week. So join me in prayer. God, we are so thankful for uh, not only the work you have done for us, but the work that you are doing in and through us. God, when it comes to uh, couples or leaders taking on groups, it is really evidence of fruit. Uh, in their lives because of what you have done for them, what you're doing in them, and certainly what you are doing through them. Um, God, I am thankful for Asael and Sarai as they uh, lead in South Far, reaching people that this building can't, uh, serving and loving their group. God, I am thankful for Eric and Abby as they look to serve, lead, and meet needs in North McAllen, super North McAllen, in ways that we can't. And so God, I would just, I pray that you would bless them, that you would watch over them, that they would be faithfully present when it comes to uh, their group. Uh, God, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that they would be sanctified uh, in this. This leading a group doesn't mean you have all of the answers, but it does mean that you are simply faithfully present. And so, God, we are Uh, thankful for this opportunity. We're thankful for this gift of multiplication uh, for the purpose of furthering your name and your glory. And so we are super thankful for these families. Again, Lord, we pray that you would bless them as they serve and lead others within the church, neighborhoods, and in the community. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. So again, if you have questions for them, they will be available for you after service. coming up next uh, i would invite you to join me in your bible we're gonna be in jeremiah chapter 29 this morning we're gonna be looking at verses 1 through 9 and so while you open your bible or load it uh, if you are new i've told you about connect sunday but if for whatever reason you can't stick around i would encourage you to stick around or at the very least, fill out one of the connect cards that is on the chairs where you're at. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles available for you. That is our gift to you. So take one, uh, uh, or, or take one for someone else. I don't know if it's—I don't know if it's my volume or if it's because I've had four cups of coffee and I'm like, I got a lot, and so I'm kind of excited. I hope you guys are too. Um, I'd like to start off our time by uh, kind of giving you some good news, I think, or giving you some news. Everyone, and, and here's what it, what it is, like I want to speak specifically to, to the church. So if you say, man, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, I've surrendered my life to Jesus, I've committed myself to Jesus, then I'm talking to you. Here, here's the news. Everyone is making disciples, That's one of the things, uh, in fact, that's probably the primary thing that we value uh, here at Storehouse. It It is making disciples. And so here's some news for you. Everyone is making disciples. The question is, disciples of whom? That's the opening question. I'm going to ask you a ton of them today, but the opening question is, disciples of whom? You see the story, and here, here's the main idea: the story of God's redemptive purposes have always involved the faithful presence and multiplication of the people of God. So, everyone here, if you say that you love, follow, serve Jesus, you're making disciples. The question is, of whom? In the pages of Scripture, Jerusalem and Babylon are not only cities, but great images and great depictions of God's favor and of God's judgment. For instance, the city of Jerusalem is portrayed as the city of God's people and of God's presence. In fact, if you uh, fast forward your Bibles to Revelation 21, we see that upon the return of Jesus, He will bring a new Jerusalem. In contrast, the city of Babylon is always portrayed as a city of rebellion. And once more, if you fast forward to Revelation 18, which is the city that is being judged, it is Babylon. Here's the next question. When we look out into Macallan, what kind of a city do you think we live in? Do you think we live in a Jerusalem? Or do you think we're living in Babylon. Let me rephrase that question. When you look out into McAllen, or better yet, when we look out into our city, where do you think we've been sent? Have we been sent to Jerusalem, or have we been sent to Babylon? I wanna take a quick pause and, and look at some statistics because I would argue that as we look outside the windows of this building and into the windows of our lives, I would say that we have been sent to Babylon. And some might argue, I don't, I don't know how, there's some good churches here. Well, then let's look at some numbers regarding statistics in our city. And what I'm going to do is kind of go really big. We're going to go national, then we're going to go to Texas, and then we're going to go to McAllen. And so nationally, here are some of the numbers, 52% of evangelicals agree that everybody sins a little bit, but we're all, for the most part, pretty good. of evangelicals, okay? From there, 32% of evangelicals believe that religious belief, and this study is taken from a 2018 study called The State of Theology by Ligonier Ministries. It was put together over the course of a year. And so 32% of evangelicals believe that religious belief, specifically Christianity, is one of opinion and not objective truth. Some of you might say, well, I didn't take those tests. Nobody called me for those surveys. Okay, let's keep getting a little bit more specific, all right? In the state of Texas, a study conducted by Pew Research in 2014, they haven't updated these numbers, but at the very least, at that time, in the state of Texas, 63% of Texans would say they believe in God. Very Texas. However, out of that 63%, only 49% said that they were actually committed to prayer, Out of that 63%, the number goes down. Only 35% would say that they are devoted to their personal study in scripture and prayer and discipleship and evangelism. It's not personal enough. Let's go to McAllen. McAllen is a population of about 145,000 people. That's 34% greater than the year 2000. This were, these are numbers taken from a study off of citydata.com, uh, and they were pulled from 2019. So McAllen is about the population of 145,000 people, 35, 34% bigger than 10 years ago. Over 50% of the population in McAllen does not know Jesus. Specifically, over 50% of the population would not affiliate with any sort of religious belief or doctrine. This isn't people who are just raised in the church or who would say that they are nominal Christian. They have zero belief in the God of the Bible. Over 50% in our city. Not personal enough. All right, here we go. Less than 10% of people in McAllen would claim to know Jesus. Less than 10%. That's only about 14,000 people in McAllen. That's a small number when you think about the amount of churches that are here uh, uh, in, in effort proclaiming the gospel. You see, the average Church size in the country is about 100 people, if not a little bit less. So we're above average. Yes, awesome. But in addition to that, even when we consider our backyard and when we consider churches like our friends at BT, even as large of a congregation as their McAllen campus is, it still does not even meet half of the people in our city. And sometimes I think Christians think the bigger the church, the more people they're reaching, but statistically, that's just not true. I think we have been sent into Babylon, not Jerusalem. And so how we make disciples and who we make disciples of matters, This morning, we're gonna look at Jeremiah 29. And what Jeremiah is going to help us do is unpack how the church is going to make disciples where they have been sent. Now that is very intentional language that I've chosen, right? How you and I are going to make disciples where we have been sent. Check it, where you are is not an accident. Where you are is not an accident. Where you are is where you have been sent. Okay? And so as we walk through Jeremiah 29, I want us to answer three questions. You don't have to write these down because we're going to walk through them. We're going to answer the what. In other words, what is the mission of the church? How do we accomplish that mission? Why should we accomplish that mission? So kind of simple. Okay? Uh, let me read Jeremiah 29. I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get going. Here we go. Beginning of verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphim, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said... uh, both through song and prayer and the preached word. Holy Spirit, would you be present um, among us and would you be at work in us? God, would you take uh, your word and apply it uh, with, with conviction and comfort not just to our ears but to our hearts and our hands and our feet? God, I pray that as we look to the mission of the church or the mission of your church, and as we look to discipleship and evangelism, as we look to these endeavors, uh, may they be done for your glory. May we participate in them so that we would uh, be sanctified and grow to know you better. Uh, And God, if there are those who don't know you and are here this morning, I pray that they would come to know you so, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in this time, that we would be sanctified, and uh, this would serve as worship for you, toward you. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question, there's a series of them, but one of the questions I told you is well, what is the mission of the church? Right? I guess a better way or a different way of asking that question would be, well, what exactly does the church do? Not just Storehouse McAllen, but what does the church do? You see, it's a simple question with great implication, and it is a simple question that has been confused by the church often. For instance, you may give me really good answers as to uh, the question, well, what does the church do? And you might have some really good answers. You might have an answer such as feed the poor and the homeless. Maybe you would say engage in injustices. Uh, Maybe you would say have and develop really good programs. Perhaps you would say the church serves to throw awesome events in the neighborhood. Now, some of these answers, you might not have been thinking of them. Maybe you had your own, or maybe you were thinking something similar. Nevertheless, some of these answers are good. Some of them are even biblical. However, that is not the primary mission of the church. See, the primary mission of the church is to make disciples. That is the primary mission of the church. And I would argue that if this is not happening, then by definition, we are not a church. We're a nonprofit, but not a church. In Matthew 28, Jesus lays out this command and this mission to the disciples, and he goes on to say, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.'" When you look at those verses, the phrase, "'Go therefore,' is translated to, "'As you are going.'" As you are going to wherever it is you have been sent, you are to make disciples. This is a command to all Christians, not just pastors and preachers and leaders, but this is a command to all Christians. And oftentimes when we quote Matthew 18, some, excuse me, Matthew 28, sometimes it feels quite repetitive. Sometimes it sounds all too familiar, right? We ought, to go make, we ought to go make disciples. I get that. I've heard it before. Here's the problem. Discipleship in the church lacks ownership. Discipleship in the church lacks ownership because it's inconvenient and uncomfortable. You see, everything that we're going to talk about out of Jeremiah 29 is going to force you and I to step outside of our comfort zone. And it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us our gifting. It's going to cost us money. It's going to cost convenience. And that's why it lacks ownership in the church. Or that's why we want to skew the definition. Last week, I gave you a definition for discipleship, and we would define it as meeting people where there are and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. Discipleship and mission, or discipleship and evangelism, go hand in hand, always. And so the truth is, I don't want to be a church that is known for simply doing good things. I want to be known as a church that makes disciples, that matures disciples, and multiplies disciples of Jesus. And in order to make disciples, you need to understand that you have been sent. You have to understand that where you are is where you have been sent. When we go back to Jeremiah 29, here's what's happening. The people of God have been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, and Jeremiah is writing them a letter from Jerusalem, okay? And he opens up that letter, or God speaks through Jeremiah and says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, When we read that verse, here's what I want you to understand about exile. God understands and knows that they don't want to be where they are. One of the the, the best conversations, one of the, the conversations that has just been going on and on and on for generations in the valley is I just want to get out of the valley. And then everybody jokes about it because it's like, man, the valley just pulls you back in right? Some of the high schoolers are like, that's not going to be me. I'll see you in 10 years, guy, right? So when it comes to that, when it comes to that, God knows that you may not exactly be where you want to be. That's what he is telling uh, his people in Babylon. He's like, I I know you don't want to be in exile. That's number one, right? Number two, he tells them where you are, I have sent you. I have sent you there. Them being sent in exile to Babylon is not outside his sovereign grace. In fact, Acts 17 tells us this, that he decrees where we're going to be. So he knows you may not exactly love the 110 degree weather and he has sent you here. And finally, God speaking to those in exile is ultimately saying, I have not forgotten about you. I have not forgotten about you because I have sent you there. Not randomly, but on purpose. And so if you and I are gonna make disciples, we need to understand first that we have been sent wherever it is you are, wherever it is that you're at, you have been sent. I might say that over and over and over again. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. So what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus where we are, okay? And I've told you this before. This is not storehouse. This is the McAllen Incubator located at 601 North Main Street, This is not the church. This is a building. You're the church. We are the church. We are going to go out and make disciples. Moving on. The next question is okay, if the mission of the church is to make disciples, well, then how do we make disciples? How can we faithfully make disciples? Well, Jeremiah uh, tells us how when we look through verses five through seven. And what I'm going to do is walk through seven things, right? Seven things in an effort to help us make disciples. I'm going to pull them from Jeremiah uh, and other pages of Scripture. And so, just to give you a quick refresher, this is what God says through Jeremiah: Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give them daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, um, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Okay, here's here's the first one. Many of you love lists. I love lists, so here we go. The first, and these are on the notes, by the way. First thing is, how do we make disciples? Invest in the next generation. We make disciples by investing in the next generation. When he tells them to, man, have your daughters get married, have your sons get married, build houses, it means that, hey, we're going to settle in here. And as we settle in, we're going to invest in the next generation. And so if you're married or, or if you have, you have kids, grow your family and disciple your family, especially if you have children, Read the Word of God with them. Pray with them. Play with them. Sing with them. Yes, you're going to look silly, but it's not about you, it's for them. Invest in the next generation. If you're like, well, you know, I'm not married, and I'm single, okay, find opportunities to invest in the next generation. Right? Hashtag no hagas, right? You can find opportunities in order to invest in the next generation. Many of you are teachers. You're investing in the next generation because you're not just Mr. or Miss So-and-so. Your teacher, your counselor, your mom, your dad, your friend, you're all of these things wrapped up into one giant classroom. And you're investing in the next generation. Some of you who are students like, well, I don't know how to invest. In it. Yes, you do. You do know how to invest in the next generation. If you're a senior, invest in a junior. If you're a junior, invest in a sophomore. If you're a sophomore, invest in a freshman. If a freshman, an eighth grader. Everybody has opportunity to invest in the next generation. If that's not formal enough, on the second floor, we have storehouse kids. Now check it. Storehouse Kids exists not because we just have a need to have classrooms. It exists because we desire to invest in the next generation. Because when you and I do not invest in the next generation, you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. And it has been proven to us in the pages of scripture. When you get some time, go to Judges 2. And you're going to see the recording of uh, Joshua's death. Now, if you rewind just a little bit, Joshua was the one that was discipled by Moses. Then Moses dies and God tells Joshua, hey, Moses is dead. You're up. I need you to lead my people in a battle. Don't worry. I'm going to be with you. He's also the one that is quoted to a, uh, in, in, in Joshua, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Everybody loves that because it's in everybody's kitchen, right? But besides that, when you turn the pages into Judges, particularly Judges 2, Joshua dies, and what is said is that he did not invest in the next generation, and so another generation arose not knowing the Lord. The drumming, the laughing, the screaming, it exists not because we wanna have childcare or daycare, but because we want to invest in the next generation. Each one of us here can find opportunities to invest in the next generation because when you and I don't, nothing happens. That's number one. Number two, invest in relationships. Invest in those around you. Once more, I've told you, where you are is where you have been sent, which means that there are people already surrounding you. Whether you work out of a coffee shop, you own a business, you have employees, you work at an office, you're a teacher, whatever. Even if you're like, well, mainly I work from home, then you can work from a coffee shop because all you need is Wi-Fi. There. Invest in the people that are already around you. This does mean going to local spots. It does mean considering your work offices. It does mean working out of coffee shops. It does mean visiting pubs, kind of like Roosevelt's. It does mean getting to know people and people in your neighborhood. So invest in those relationships. Contextualize your living. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says that he became all things to all people. And so in other words, he was saying, hey, on Monday, you can find me hanging out with the Jews, and we're going to be going back and forth on the law. On Tuesday, you're going to see me eating bacon with the Gentiles. On Wednesday, I'm going to be having coffee with the philosophers. He is making himself known. He is becoming all things to all people, investing in the relationship where he's at for the purpose of hopefully saving some. And he says, I do it for the sake of the gospel. So he's going where, man, whoever it is he can make a friend, he's going to go. The beauty of our day is that you don't have to try very hard. Because you've got coworkers. If you're like, well, I'm a business owner. You've got clients. you got people that step into your shop. Invest in relationships where you are. Contextualize your living. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Number three, demonstrate hospitality. Hospitality requires a couple of things. And I don't think it requires the things that you may be thinking. But then again, I think I'm assuming what you're thinking. (laughs) Demonstrating hospitality requires vulnerability. It requires vulnerability because you're inviting someone or people into your house. You're inviting them into your house, which means they're going to see if you're an eat freak They're going to see if you're a slob. They're going to see what you like, what you don't like, what you value, what you don't value, how you, uh, you know, manage your household. They're going to see all of these things about your life. They might not even have to ask you so many questions because they're going to see it. Hospitality requires vulnerability. Hospitality requires sharing what you have. Already people are like, I don't know about that. I got these secret stashes. Yeah, that's the one I want you to share. Yeah, right? Hospitality requires sharing what you have because hospitality requires you to be present. It's not about the presentation. It's about being present. If you have coffee, make it. If you don't, cool, just sit down and talk. Like these things are simple. They might not be easy, but they're simple. Demonstrating hospitality requires vulnerability, sharing what you have, and presence. And if not to exhort you, this is what the Apostle Peter says in chapter 4 of his epistle. He says, show hospitality to one another. Everybody's like, yeah, that's good. And then he adds, without grumbling. Without grumbling, because he, he knows we don't want to share what we have. Because he knows we're going to complain about it because he knows we're going to make excuses about it. I can't remember the title of her book, but author Rosaria Butterfield, this is what she says. Our home is not our castle. It's not even ours. If you and I believe that everything we have is a gift from God, then that includes our homes. And if our homes is a gift from God, then that's not yours or mine. In hospitality, it is a very personal, real, transparent method of making disciples. Because they get to see all the things. For instance, when we started our Friday night group, right? Uh, And you could talk to many of them. uh, They've showed up to our house after Rebecca and I have had an argument. They've showed up to our house when... um, I've invited others when we have uh, our, our granddaughter running around and there's clothes everywhere and there's Legos everywhere and I love to just keep things clean and I'm just trying to pick up. They've seen the mess, they've seen the arguments, they've seen it all. That's cool. I mean, that's ordinary, isn't it? Like, hospitality is super ordinary, we're just too self-centered to do it, Right? Remember, hospitality requires vulnerability, sharing what you have, and presence. Not presence, like regalos, like present, like you, you are present. That's number three. Number four, and this carries on into, from, from hospitality, number four is disciple people where you are. We've been, I've been kind of emphasizing this over the course of our time. Discipling people where you are. That is meeting them where they are. Some of you have asked over the past week, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to disciple someone where I'm at? I'll give you two examples. First one is my wife. Her name is Rebecca. She owns a salon in North McAllen. And one of the things that she, uh, she does is well, she styles hair. But uh, her clients are in her chair uh, for as little as 45 minutes to as much as four hours, right? And so she's already going to the salon. Those clients have already made appointments. She starts talking to them about Jesus, She starts asking them about their lives. She starts asking them about their kids. She starts sharing her own personal story. And many of those clients have been with her over the course of 10 years. Many of them have come to know Jesus. Some of them still don't know Jesus, and yet she is still pouring into them regardless. That's discipling people where you are. Well, I don't have a salon or something like that, okay? I know this one teacher. He started off teaching not very long ago, Uh, became a Christian, and they said, hey, why don't you lead FCA? He's like, I've never done anything like that before, right? Like, this is brand new Christian, never led a Bible study, never done any of that. Teachers walk up to him, they're like, you're kind of, you know, like a Christian, I think. Why don't you lead FCA? So he says, okay. So he asks, what do I do? And I say, buy them tacos. Every day at 7 a.m., he would meet with his students and have tacos with them. It, It cost him something. It cost him time. But he created this space where he was hospitable to his students, he was available to his students, and he just hung out with his students, and he would open his Bible, and they would ask him questions, and he would say, I don't know, so let's look at it together. Because he had been a Christian for like two weeks. It's not about having all the answers. You're not going to have all the answers. You're going to get stumped. But it is about being present. It is about being faithful So disciple people where you are. Whether that's in the office, whether that's with your employees, whether that's with the bartenders or the baristas, disciple people where you are. Now, the next one, number five, is proclaim the gospel. Now, I'll pause just a minute on that one because as we have walked through investing in the next generation, some might think like, oh, yeah, I could totally do that because those are my kids. Great, right? That's the first line of investment. It's going to be your family. Uh, When we talk about investing in relationships, like, sure, I could make friends and I could talk to people uh, about what they do and where they're from and the things they like. I could, yeah, okay, I'm with you so far. And then it's, uh, hey, why don't you begin to demonstrate hospitality without, grumbling. Uh, Okay, all right, man, I might start something like that. Okay, cool. Uh, I get it. I can invite people to my house, make some food for them, or have food available for them. I could totally do that. Disciple people where you are. Right, so it's continuing to make those relationships. Uh, Yeah, 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 I could do that. Proclaim the gospel. Whoa, things are going to get really uncomfortable. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are, but they don't have to be. They don't have to be proclaim the gospel. When you look at the words of Jesus, I'm gonna read you two, two things, right? Mark 16, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In addition to that, in Luke 10, he says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You're gonna get pushback. Not everybody's going to agree with you. Not everybody is going to like you. Jesus knows that, and he is sending us into the midst of that. He is sending us right into the midst of that. My son had a question for me yesterday. I didn't ask him about this, so I'm not going to give the details, but he had a question for me about one of his friends, and so we're kind of going back and forth, and he's like, man, what do I do right? I kind of want to distance myself. And so as we were talking, the first question was, well, what does scripture teach? What is, has what is Jesus taught us? And he, he looked at me like, I gotta, I gotta talk to him. Like, yes, you're going to go back into that uh, relationship, that friendship, and you're going to talk. Why? Because you love him, right? Proclaim the gospel. Now, with that being said, I told you that we were going to talk a little bit about contextualization, right you can look at 1 Corinthians 9 Paul's like I became all things so all people I had pork with the gentiles I philosophized with the philosophers right he has all these things but check it in each one of those social spheres he proclaimed the gospel he might have contextualized, like, "Yeah, man, I'll have some bacon with you, just so that he can get an opportunity to share the gospel." Right? Contextualization without the pro- excuse me. Let me back up. Contextualization without the proclamation of the gospel is called compromise. It's called compromise. The phrase "preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words" is dumb. Okay. Contextualization without the proclamation of the gospel, is called compromise. So when you disciple people, the proclamation of the gospel is involved in that discipleship relationship. Every time. Every time. Proclaim the gospel. Number six: <clears throat> Grow in discernment. I want to take you back up to verses eight and nine. He says, "For thus says the Lord of hosts, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to them. Uh, do not listen to their dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Here's what's happening in the context of Jeremiah 29. There are people who claim to be prophets who are telling the people of God, hey, this exile, it's only gonna last a little bit. Don't worry about it. God gave me a word, and he wants me to tell you that, uh, hey, in one or two years, we're out. Like, this this is super easy. It's okay. And so God is speaking to his people through Jeremiah, and he's saying, I didn't send them. Don't listen to them. Because if you continue reading Jeremiah 29 toward the end, God tells his people, I'm gonna send you there for 70 years. That's three generations, right? Now, let's fast forward to you and me. Uh, I guess the best way to translate that would be, you're gonna be here for a while. You're gonna be here for a while. You're gonna be here for a while. You will be here for a while and you have been sent, okay? Now, within the scope of those three generations, some of you are like, I don't wanna be here three generations. Some of you might move home. Some of you aren't from here. Maybe you won't be here that long. Okay, all of this still applies to you, right? Your faithful presence still applies to you. Some of you are going to be here for three generations. Very cool. Awesome. Here's what I want to talk about, right? I want to talk a little bit about generational excuses. Some of you have been here for generations and have not made one disciple of Jesus, but you've made plenty of disciples of yourself, right? Maybe you make plenty of disciples of yourself with with experience and words of wisdom, none of them actually rooted in biblical truth. When I tell you that we're going to be here for a while or that you're going to be here a while, you think about making disciples. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that eventually. That's, that's good. That's, it's probably for the, the MC leaders that were up here. They're going to do that. Everybody is making disciples. The question is of whom? That's, that's, that's the question. Everybody's making disciples. You and I are making disciples. Boom. Are you making disciples of Jesus? Are you proclaiming his gospel? Or are you making disciples of yourselves? One of the ways that is dangerous when it comes to making disciples of ourselves is when we share our testimony, and Jesus isn't the hero of our testimony. When we share our story, when we share our testimony, and it's like, I was bad, then God did some really good things, and now I go to church, look at me. Jesus is not the hero of that story. So if we're going to grow in discernment, that means that you and I need to make disciples of Jesus, not of ourselves. In fact, we die to ourselves daily so that Jesus would be made known. And finally, number seven is prayer. All of this is soaked in prayer. All of it is soaked in prayer. Like our strategies, whether they would be formal as a church or or whether they would be informal in terms of uh, where you are in your workplace and your relationships, like strategies don't mean anything if we don't begin with the one who is faithful to do the work. We want to be Christ-dependent, asking him to boldly move in our city and our relationships and not strategy-dependent. Because when we become strategy-dependent, we're, we're depending on that system. But, but God didn't say, go, therefore, and formulate systems, structuring them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, right? He didn't say that. He said, go therefore and make disciples. Like as you are going, make disciples where you are. And so I'm going to answer one more question very, very quickly because you'll learn about this in in the back tables in a moment. So those are seven things of how we make disciples. One of the questions would be, well, what what does some of this look like at Storehouse? I'll give you four quick things. Number one, for us, missional communities. Our MCs are the primary avenue for discipleship, care, counsel, and missional living. That's it. Like we funnel everything through our MCs. And so if you want to build friendships and relationships, dive deeper into the Word of God with one another, MCs are going to be the primary avenue. It's not the only one, but it is the primary avenue. The next thing for us that we're really putting a lot of effort into this year is increasing our relationships here on Main Street. Like, we have Wilson Elementary that is right across the street. Uh, every once in a while, they allow me to go over there and pray for the teachers, and that's awesome. I love doing that. Uh, I've gotten to know many of them. Uh, but in addition to that, we want to come alongside Wilson Elementary and, and partner with them on things that they are already doing. That way, the whole work part is out of the way, and we can just share the gospel with them. Thanks. Right? Uh, in addition to those relationships, over the years, we have developed really good, a, re- let me, a really good relationship uh, with Roosevelt's at 7. If you haven't been to that pub, it's an amazing pub. You don't have to drink beer. You can drink water and Cokes, right? But apart from that, like, those guys are legit. They're wonderful, and uh, we've gotten to know them and where they're from, and some of, the, some of them have shared a lot of their stories, and so we want to actually hold classes at Roosevelt's. Uh, we'll talk more about that later. Another one is, is here at the Incubator. We have a lot of other tenants here. We know a couple of them. We meet them during the week, uh, but we want to know all of them. All right. So the Incubator hosts something called the Art Walk, and so we're going to be participating in the Art Walk doing some artistic things, uh, and uh, one of the things that we want to do, if any of you are Office fans, you know, the show, uh, if you have heard of Pretzel Day, we want to do that here because that was awesome. If you don't know what Pretzel Day is, don't worry. It's not, it's not important. We want to continue to invest in partnerships that we currently have. But in addition to that, number three, we want to plant churches. One of the goals here over the next three years is to plant a church out of Storehouse McAllen. And as we do that, and as we are moving forward, that also means that we're going to invest in other church planters and their teams. So if you've been a part of Storehouse for some time, last year, this is how awesome you are by the grace of God. You helped plant Refuge Community Church in Austin, Texas, and Christ Redeemer in Moreno Valley, California. That was you. You have helped those men and women pour into their congregations so that they can continue furthering the gospel in their cities. And if you're not down with church planting, it might not be the place for you. And finally, the last one is serving. One of the best ways in in how we make disciples is by serving one another. Sometimes that is formally. Jumping on some of the teams, like Storehouse Kids, shameless plug. But nevertheless, right, 20% of our church consists of children. And again, going back to reason number one as to why and how we disciple is by investing in the next generation. Those are some of the ways in which it looks like here at Storehouse. Back to Jeremiah 29. Why do we do this? If the mission of the church is to make disciples and Jeremiah 29 has helped us uh, walk through how we do that, then the final question is why? Why do we do it? Two quick reasons. We do it because of the Great Commission. That is Matthew 28. However, the Great Commission is not simply a command for all Christians. It is the gospel in action. It is God coming down from heaven, entering into human history as Jesus Christ, meeting us where we are in our life and struggle so that he might be known by us because he personally knows our needs intimately. You see, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on the cross doesn't just save us from hell. It's not only that the grace of God has saved us from the wrath of God, but it is that the grace of God has reconciled us to the Father. That the way things ought to be are the way he is making them through restoration and reconciliation. And so when it comes to us, preaching, proclaiming the gospel, and making disciples is because not only do we want people to be saved from themselves, but we want people to come to know Jesus so that they would be reconciled to the Father, so that they would be restored, so that their hearts would be made new, so that they would no longer be an enemy of God, but that they would be a friend to God, that they would no longer be lost, but that they would be found, that they would no longer be rejected, but adopted, that they would no longer be orphans, but sons and daughters. That is why we make disciples. That is how we make disciples. It is so that people would come to know Jesus and be reconciled to the Father. That is why we do it. We do. And number two, it is for His glory and His glory alone. Psalm 115, the psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. All of this is not about us. It is for us, but it is ultimately not about us. It is about the glory of God. We do not boast in ourselves. We don't boast in our finances, our castles, our homes. We don't boast in anything but Jesus Christ. And so when we see people come to know Jesus, when we see people curious, and they begin to wrestle with the truths of scripture, it is all done for the glory of God. All of that is done for his glory and not our own. And so as we close, what kind of disciples are you making? What kind of disciples are you making? Where you are, home, work, office, whatever, insert your thing. Of whom are you making disciples of? I would encourage you, church, I would encourage you to repent of one of three things or all three things. Number one, I would encourage you to repent of self-righteousness when it comes to making disciples and proclaiming the gospel, the reason it's uncomfortable and inconvenient is because we think we're better than those who don't know Jesus. But the truth is that the only thing that separates us from non-believers is repentance. And that was a gift given to you. So repent of your self-righteousness. The Christian is not better. The Christian is repentant which means that their hearts have been broken and grieved by their sin and they have been reconciled to God and now they have access to him. Repent of self-righteousness. Some of you have been, when it comes to discipleship or when it comes to, to evangelism, like sharing the gospel, you have been crippled by fear. And I, and I don't want to dismiss that because sometimes that's real and maybe you've had like bad experiences. So I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. Please hear me, I'm not dismissing that. But sometimes what I see is that uh, an individual who was once crippled by fear now begins to embrace it and their heart begins to be hardened toward others who don't know the gospel or their heart becomes hardened toward the Lord. Right, Paul says to Timothy, we have not been given a spirit of fear, uh, but one of power and sound judgment. And, and it's one thing to be crippled by it because of experience. It's another thing to embrace fear because that, that becomes a form of pride. When, when fear begins to take over, joy decreases. And so, if so that's you, you've embraced it, but repent of that. Man, fix your eyes on Jesus, surrender that before him so that you would grow in joy as you are making disciples. And finally, number three, many of you need to reevaluate your priorities. Remember, everybody makes disciples. Like you are making disciples in your life. One way or another, you're making disciples. And so when it comes to the gospel and its proclamation, and I tell you, hey, we need a, you need to prioritize that. If there is pushback, oftentimes there's pushback because we want to embrace self-centeredness, self-interest, and self-control. Like we want to control what we want to do. We want to control how we want to do it. We want to control as much as we can. The problem with that, is that self-control Actually, in a a a good way, self-control is a good thing because it is a piece of the fruit of the Spirit. But when we use it in an effort to stay away from people and do things how we want to do them and pull away from people, not only are we skewing our priorities, we're really going back to number one. We're developing self-righteousness. So repent of that. Repent of self-righteousness. Turn... Turn from fear to to joy. Reorient your priorities. When when was the last time you proclaimed the gospel in the relationships that are surrounding you right now? Specifically, when was the last time that you proclaimed the gospel to the relationships that surround you to people who do not know Jesus Last week, we talked about community. We could talk about community all day. Oh, yeah, I shared the gospel with so-and-so over coffee. Right, that's good. That's awesome. Speak gospel truths to one another. I'm not knocking that. Now I'm asking you about people who don't know Jesus. Contextualization without proclamation is compromise. And the reason the church lacks ownership and discipleship is because, one, I may not want to have gospel truths with you because I'm assuming you know the gospel. And then over here, on the other hand, I don't want to have gospel truths with you because I just don't value the gospel as much as I say I do. Right? Our priorities are skewed. So let's repent of self-righteousness. Let's repent of, of, of fear that has clouded our judgment. Let's repent of skewed priorities. And remember, the story of God's redemptive purposes involves the presence and multiplication of God's people. Let's pray. God, each one of us makes disciples. Um, the question is, are we making disciples of Jesus or are we making disciples of ourselves? We, the truth is, we could also go deeper into that question. Do we make disciples when we want to or because you have just commanded us to do it? Because it's, it, is the, it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Lord, Lord if we're honest, We're not always making disciples of Jesus. And even when we do, often we do it on our own terms, in our own way, and at that point, maybe we compromise your gospel message. God, sharing the gospel is also, uh, it could also be hard. It could be uncomfortable but I I just don't know what it is you've called us to that isn't stepping outside of our comfort zone. And and part of the reason you, you call us to step outside of our comfort zone is so that we would be sanctified and so that we would wholly depend on you. That we would depend on the Holy Spirit to be at work in us to sustain us, to give us strength and courage. God, when we begin to talk about discipleship and mission and evangelism, all three of those facets are really interconnected to one another because all three of them involve the proclamation of your gospel. Now, there are many here who serve others so well there are many here who know how to meet needs, and I am thankful for them. So, Lord, would you implant your word within them to proclaim your gospel, to proclaim, uh, yeah, to proclaim your gospel, and not just practice it. God, may we be courageous. May we be bold in proclaiming your gospel. God, may parents not assume that just because their, their kids are at church or doing Christian-like things or even at Christian schools, I pray that parents would not assume that their children know Jesus just because of really good programs. God, I pray that when we proclaim the gospel to one another, that we would not assume that the other person knows the gospel well. Maybe they need to be encouraged. Maybe they really don't know Jesus. Would we, uh, uh, may we be courageous and bold in proclaiming that gospel. Lord, when it comes to friends, family, neighbors, uh, people that we visit on the ordinary or in the regular, when it comes to people who don't know Jesus, would you give us strength and boldness to step out, suck the air out of the room and say, man, I love Jesus. I know you don't know God, but, but he knows who you are. God, my prayer is that that discipleship, mission, and evangelism would simply be refined as the proclamation of your gospel to those that we have been sent to.